Let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to, I moved the lectern closest to the first seat that's occupied, and over time you have to move the lectern back. You, <laughs> you could move further back, yes. All right, um, Bob and Brian are handing out uh, a pamphlet for today's uh, session, and this one is on the theology of abuse, the theology of abuse, and it's connected directly to obviously the, the report that we're going to cover the next three weeks. And report sounds very dry and, um, and, and uh, staid, but it is, it is actually quite uh, heavy and important. Um, culturally, probably not a better discussion for the church to have to let the world listen in on is our understanding of abuse, our understanding of um, the categories of abuse, Categories include things like domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and spiritual abuse. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to cover all of those topics um, as they are presented in what's called DASA, the Domestic Abuse and Sexual Assault Report from the Ad Interim Committee from 2019, but was reported actually last year. Um, It was presented to our denomination, accepted by our denomination, and now is um, on us to digest and to talk about what will we do as a result of what's in uh, the, the content of this document. Uh, it, is, it is super heavy. There's no question about it. And it would be foolish of me, absolutely foolish of me, to think that um, we're in a group this large and no one has experienced domestic abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, or spiritual abuse. It would be foolish to think that you haven't been touched by it in some way, shape, or form, whether directly or indirectly. And so it's, it's extraordinarily important, and we should pause and pray and ask God to help us. So I'm going to ask Tim Chapman if he would open our time in prayer. Thank you, Tim. All right, here's the structure of the DASA report. It's pretty simple. There's the biblical and theological foundations for understanding abuse. Um, that's today's topic. And just coincidentally, I happened to watch Whiplash for the first time ever uh, this weekend. Um, Have you seen Whiplash? Whiplash is the movie with J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller as a youngster uh, playing the drums at a a school for music, this top school for music. And J.K. Simmons is the teacher, instructor, professor. And the entire movie, if you you said, Sean, summarize it for us, it is... Does, does the world have it right when it comes to the push for excellence or skill or dynamic uh, contribution? Does the world have it right in that your best comes out when you are abused? And you may, you may say that's an easy one, uh, but I remember a young man who came to me one time. I know him well. Uh, he came and as a youngster, teenager-ish uh, 16, basically said, hey, I'm looking forward to dating. And because I knew his background and his um, understanding of those things, I said, tell me what you mean by you're looking forward to dating. Well, I said, you know, you know uh, girls need to be prepared for marriage later. And I, knowing his mind, um, said, what do you mean by that? Well, he grew up in a house where domestic abuse was normal and daily and believed that part of marriage was the preparation of females 
for that kind of environment, and you wanted to start in the dating realm. And so when he finished saying that, I said, well, let me just share with you what I think. You should never date, ever. You should never marry. You should never engage in any of those relationships because you don't understand a thing about what it means to care for, for another person, much less somebody that you're supposed to have actual affection for, right? Um, Whiplash has that message, which is, you're going to get better if we abuse you. You're going to get better if we wear you out. And then you step into a sanctuary, a place where we are thinking differently and could not thank God more for the way it was set up in the sermon this morning about how our God views and has established the world so differently than it plays out on its own. Everything you heard this morning was basically the the world's view and God's view are so different. A slave that has rights. Hmm. We're we're not used to that kind of language. A, a, A female who in that culture could say, I don't want that. Right? Very different approach. This context and this, uh, this topic for us is um, we have a very different view on how people are to be treated, how people are to be engaged with and dealt with, and what are the roles, particularly for the church, in these cases. This paper is 206 pages long. I suspect very few people will ever read it, but I am so encouraged by what I think will come as a result of days like today, where churches throughout our denomination are saying, how, how do we approach this differently than the rest of the world? Having the realization that the church, Big C Church, is as guilty of abuse as any of these other areas, domestic, sexual, child. The church is guilty of abuse as well. And so that's our topic for the next three weeks. I'm tackling this the the foundational topics of theology of abuse and what the scriptures have to say about it and what, uh, what our particular approach to it is from a denominational perspective. Um, Bob, and then next week I'll cover uh, domestic abuse and, and child abuse specifically from scripture and what it is that we think pastorally needs to happen and what we need to do as a church to protect our own children, right? And then Bob will cover the last of the topics, which will be spiritual abuse and the, the, the nature of authority in the church and how that can be misused as well. Does that make sense? So those will be our next three weeks. I know it's heavy. I, I, I wish it were lighter, um, but it's still super important. I think you'll be encouraged. I really do. So uh, that, that's today is the biblical and uh, theological foundations for understanding abuse, uh, the next two weeks, and then uh, the 30th. So um, here's an important statement as you think about what we're going to talk about And that is that elders in the PCA take vows, including a vow to sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of the church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. So all the elders here have taken those vows. And you'll say, so what? And that's a great question to ask. Uh, And I would say, particularly in this topic, you're going to be, I think, very encouraged by what it is that God has done in the church to structure her in a way that would protect the vulnerable among us, right? That would protect those who are uh, most susceptible to being abused. Most susceptible. And we'll, we'll dive into that. Um, it also talks about uh, BCO 27.1, which teaches that discipline in the church has two aspects. And when we go through membership interviews, we say this to anybody who wants to join the church, that there are two kinds of discipline. 
One is the kind of discipline you're experiencing right now and the kind of discipline you experience in the worship service and the kind of discipline you experience as we engage with each other just normally. You're being discipled. You're being taught what the Scriptures have to say about the, the things that we talked about this morning. Who is God? How does that connect to every other day of the week? You and I are being discipled week after week. That's the discipline that we're talking about. Very positive, very methodical, uh, very intentional, and it's got a very long-term aspect to it, right? We're, we're saying we're going to be discipled for the rest of our lives, and we're going to do this together because that's how this works. But we also talk about discipline in the sense of the restricted technical sense of judicial process. In other words, when things go haywire, when there are issues between uh, individuals or groups, when there is a need for justice to, to step in and right wrongs, elders have a responsibility to do that too. And so here's what that means. We're not allowed, um, we can't be quiet when things are going on. We don't have the freedom, because we're not free, to allow things to happen when we know that they're happening, that are a violation of the justice that should be upheld by the courts of the church. That includes the topics we're about to dive into. And so because we are a Presbyterian, and I say that with great encouragement, that the structure of our church is such that we have taken vows that we will engage in the shepherding and discipline of people on a regular basis, discipling, but also when things go haywire, that we have a responsibility to not be quiet, and to not to let things go and just pass. One of the things we say in those membership interviews on um, vow number five is when you, when you acknowledge the government of the Presbyterian Church, what you're basically saying is you're inviting us in to shepherd you and your family, and you're inviting us in when things go haywire. And you have the freedom and the joy of saying, we need help, will you help us? And it's our obligation and joy to be able to say yes. That's what we're here for. So You have that as a two-way street of a resource to you to say, you don't have to do this by yourself and you don't have to endure injustice. Because that is not God's desire. Uh, I've shared it with you before, Gary Hogan was the U.S. ambassador to Rwanda uh, during the genocide and wrote a book called The Good News of Injustice, and the subtitle is this, There's a God in Heaven Who Hates It. That's the good news, is that it will not allow, be allowed to continue, neither here nor forever, right? And one of the ways it's addressed here, uh, thanks be to God, is through the church and the courts that God has given her, General Assembly, Presbytery, Recession. There's the quick setup. Uh, any questions about that before we press on? Because I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions from here on out. Any questions about that? So the first question is this. Is a 1649 document relevant? I just talked about we're taking vows to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if I had all the teenagers in here, they would just roll their eyes back at 1649. That anything that happened before they were alive doesn't have really much significance. And I would say... Maybe we have some questions to answer too. Is a document that was established and, and finished in 1649 have any relevance? And the answer is pretty simple. It's a rhetorical question. But the answers are pretty simple. Uh, if truth is absolute, in other words, if truth is truth is truth regardless, then the answer is yes. Because if what was said in 1649 is the truth, then it's true today. 
And you'll say, how is that possible when there's so much more information and technology and uh, we, we are, we're just smarter? I would challenge all those things. I would challenge everything I just said. I'm not sure we're, we're much smarter. I'm not sure we're better at any use of technology. I'm not sure we're better at thinking through the, the big questions of life. If truth supersedes culture and time, then a 1649 document is relevant. Truth should be over, across time and across cultures, and that is a good definition for you. If you want to know what's true, let's see if it's true in every single culture. And if it's true in every single culture, it's probably true. Which um, I would say is an answer to my secular humanist friends who are saying there is no truth. And I would say, then why is it, C.S. Lewis's argument in Mere Christianity, why is it that I can go to China and talk to somebody one-to-one and say, is it right or wrong to be cruel to somebody? And they would have the same answer, even under communism, even under a godless system, they would still have the conscientious answer of it's wrong to be cruel to people. It's wrong to murder people, right? Regardless of culture, that's what you'll find out, that those things are true because it's built into you from the very God who made you. Oh, there are people who transcend those things and cross those lines, but you know what I'm talking about. A sane, reasonable person would say, it is wrong to do those things. If we believe the God of the Bible speaks to the human condition and provides our only hope in life and in death, and the answer is yes, a 1649 document is going to be relevant to everything we're about to talk about. If the issues of the human heart are the same today, then yes, it's relevant. And an investigation of several commandments and requirements will help. Um, One quick note before we dive into all the questions I have for you. Uh, Technical terms describing abuse are not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's what I mean by that. We use a lot of modern modern, um, vocabulary to talk about abuse and categories of abuse. You're not going to see all those technical language of, of the modern era in the Westminster Confession of Faith. However, all of the sinful behaviors attached to abuse and oppression, all of the sinful behaviors attached to uh, domestic, sexual, um, child, and spiritual abuse are all in the 1640. It is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think you will be encouraged that our constitution of our church, the Bible, the Westminster Confession, and the Book of Church Order, is a consistent presentation of what the Bible teaches and it teaches about all the issues of the human heart, warts and all. Warts and all. It's directly connected to the misuse of power. In other words, the language that is used in the Westminster Confession talks about the misuse of power. Uh, These issues are directly addressed in the WCF through physical force, authority, formal authority, familial authority, informal authority, covenantal authority, and can also appear in age, intellectual ability, and financial influence. Here's what I mean by all of that. A lot of abuse is connected to power differential. Position that you have, position that other people have, and the use of that power. Parents to children, husbands to wives, um, authorities in the state to those who are uh, subjects of the state, Any place where there is an authority structure, a misuse of that authority can occur. The Westminster addresses it 100%, and it is what we have to understand when we talk about terms of abuse, conditions and thinking on abuse. And in all these these categories, uh, which includes physical force, 
you know, the, I'll share this with you. I share it with people on a regular basis. The only thing the government really has as a tool is force. Because they are in authority over us, the only tool they really have is force. Which when they have to use that, it's a bad day. It's a bad day for you. It's a bad day for your neighbors if they have to use force, right? It's also true in other power differential relationships is sometimes physical force is the tool that is used. But also formal, familial, um, informal, and covenantal. We have covenantal authority here. Uh, But it also shows up in age, intellectual ability, misuse of things because somebody's not as um, intelligent as you are, as sharp as you are doesn't have the mental faculty or capability that you do, or the financial means to do things that you do, right? Those differentials are real. I'm not saying that's going to be our focus. Our real focus is going to be uh, what does the Bible have to say about these things and what's the role of the church in responding to abuse. <clears throat> so here is the uh, kind of the key statement that's used in the report. And in our time together, it's Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism 151. And here's the question, uh, question number 151. What are those aggravations that some sins are more heinous than others? The term you need to focus on is more heinous. Sin is sin is sin. All sin is evil. All sin is deserving of wrath. All sin is deserving of judgment. But the Bible teaches, and we are to consider, that there are categories that are more heinous than others. And the Westminster gives us four categories where that's true. Here is the first. From the persons offending, if they be of riper age, greater experience or grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, guide to others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others. That is a reference to anyone who is in authority. For them to commit certain sins uh, is more heinous than those sins being committed in other contexts. Westminster addresses a differential in power and authority as a more heinous abuse, a more heinous sin, than that same sin being conducted in another way. All sin is evil. All sin deserves hell. All sin deserves God's wrath. All sin. Some are more heinous because of the nature of them. That's the first description. The second one is this, from the parties offended, if immediately against God, his attributes and worship, against Christ and his grace, the Holy Spirit, his witness and workings, against superiors, men of eminency, and such as we stand especially related and engaged unto, against any of the saints, particularly weak brethren, the souls of them or any, or any other, and the common good of all or many. Basically, it says this, if the Nature of the sin is directly against God or against the, the, the Lord Jesus or the Holy Spirit. You know this from Scripture, that what is called the, the, the blasphemy of blasphemies, the, the sin uh, that's unforgivable, unpardonable, and that language is um, very, people are very aware of that language, even if you're not a Christian, is what's referred to as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Right? That that is, a, that is a sin of such heinous nature that it, it indicates something even greater going on in your own heart, right? Or against um, the saints or the weaker brother. We just finished in men's Bible study going through Romans 14 and 15, and that entire section is about 
how are we to engage with a weaker brother? Because the Bible is so clear that we are not supposed to um, take our advantage as a stronger brother or sister and abuse our weaker brothers or sisters. And it does happen. It does happen. Uh, The third explanation, from the nature and quality of the offense, uh, if it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins, if not only conceived in the heart, but break forth in words and actions, if it scandalizes others and admits of no reparation, if against means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonition, censors of the church, civil punishments in our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants and engagements to God or men, if done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. What makes a sin a heinous sin is if it is done in such a way that you are uh, constantly um, repenting of it. This is not just a besetting sin. We all have those. This is something that's constantly done with the knowledge of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bent this way. This is what I'm going to keep doing. I'm just going to keep doing it. And you should, if you're familiar with the language, start thinking about how this relates to abuse. How abuse is something that happens. There's usually some sorrow involved. And then it happens again. And then there's some sorrow involved. And it happens again and again and again. This is the category that the Westminster is talking about when it says more heinous. More heinous. Some of that language is, um, is really helpful. Um, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. Again, uh, you and I have besetting sins. Oh, we could talk about them. We're not talking about things that you wrestle with and struggle with and try to kill. We're talking about things that you know are real. There's there's sorrow, but not godly sorrow, and it continues on. We'll talk about that specifically. And the last one, the last description. Uh, From circumstances of time and place, if on the Lord's day or other times of divine worship or immediately before or after these, or other uh, helps to prevent or remedy such miscarriages, if in public or in the presence of others who are thereby likely to be provoked or defiled. In other words, if it's on a day like today, or if it's in a place where it encourages other people to do the same, it, it rises to a category of more heinous. So those are the four kind of descriptions of what it means to be more heinous. And the category of abuse is in that category of more heinous sins. Domestic, child, sexual spiritual abuse, are all in those categories, right? You can find language in there to describe all of that. So we're going to spend the rest of our time together talking about how some of these uh, categories of abuse fit that definition because they break multiple commandments. That was one of the definitions of more heinous sins, is it breaks multiple commandments at the same time, right? It kind of plows through all the barriers that God has set up between us and each other to care for each other and to love each other and to serve each other. Um, And this is where I'll start asking you some questions. So these are the four places, the fifth, sixth, seventh, and ninth commandment are regularly, collectively broken when abuse occurs. Domestic, child, sexual, or spiritual. Tell me how the fifth commandment can be broken when we're talking about 
topics of abuse. You just heard a description of what more heinous sins are. Kind of say it in your own words now. Think about the fifth commandment and how that commandment is broken when we're talking about abuse. Yes. So, fifth commandment is, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. So on and so on. It's really the establishment of authority. And so, how is it that the categories of abuse are a violation of the fifth? So authority is established. It is two ways, right? Um, there's, a, there's a position. The language in the uh, Westminster from, from that era is superior and inferior. It has nothing to do with value of people, simply the position of people. And so we would say it in other ways. We would say that somebody has responsibility. Other people are uh, under, their, under their authority, superior and inferior. So yeah, there's that two-way street set up. How is abuse a violation of that? Yeah, this is where in the paper, in the, in the report, there are case studies for all, all four categories, for domestic, sexual, child, and spiritual authority abuse, um, and how difficult it is for the victim in that case to submit to authority, right? And, that's their, and that is a tool that is used by abusers in many cases, particularly in domestic abuse. The authority. You are to submit. And that is used as a tool to continue abuse. Right? And what in the world is the church supposed to say to somebody who would use the fifth commandment as a way to continue their abuse? In my home, there is a, uh, there is a, a, a tradition that I have started, I hope my boys pick up with, so um, I, I minted four coins um, years ago. And if you know anything about military mission and military service, there are coins minted for all kinds of um, activities and, and um, campaigns and all kinds of things that are part of minting of coins. And you collect those over the years as, as sort of a, a testimony of where you've been and what you've done. I minted four coins that on the front side is a relief of feet being washed. On the back side is a relief of David and Goliath, David in mid-swing, ready to take Goliath down, right? And that coin is given to my boys as they become men. And as we talk through different topics and certain goals are achieved, we have a a gathering of their uh, significant people in their lives, and they receive the coin. And I've given out three of the four. Because we're, um, and Spencer knows this day is coming, but Spencer and I are still talking about many, many topics about what it means to be, to be male under God's authority and in his world. What does it mean? And on that coin, on the back, it just says three words, strength to serve. That God made you, young man, male So you would have some responsibility at some point in your life, whether it's in a family, whether it's in the church, or in some other arena, you're going to have some measure of authority. But that authority is only given to you to serve. That's it. It's not given to you for any other reason. You were made male so that God would use you 
serve those who are under your authority. And this is the fifth commandment. That the reason God has established authority is to serve those underneath. Not that they're underneath because they're lesser. Because they're of high value. To serve them because you're an authority over them. And so any, any other use of that authority, and this is the, the whiplash movie, right? We just berate, we beat them down. This will make you better. This will make you better. You don't have that right, Michael, Seth, Spencer. You don't have that right to, to lord it over those in your authority and just beat them down. Your job is to build them up and encourage them. Give them truth and give them love and give them encouragement. This is the nature of the fifth commandment, that authority is intended to be in service to those who are in authority over. Uh, It's forbidden to use it for your own advancement or oppression of those in your care. You're forbidden to use authority, and this is where we find it mostly in the marketplace, where authority is used to get to the the next spot. I'm going to use my position to get to the next position. And I would argue, even in the marketplace, if you've been given authority, granted authority by some business owner or some structure, that that authority is given to you to serve those that are in your care. That would be my argument. And I think the the fifth commandment establishes that, and I think the violation of the fifth commandment is the abuse of that authority. Look at the sixth commandment. What what about the sixth commandment um, would fit the category of domestic, child, sexual, or spiritual abuse? of a reminder of what's the sixth commandment. (laughs) What is the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. And so talk about um, the keeping of that commandment in connection with protection from abuse or violating that commandment in connection with committing abuse. Yeah, you're, you're not allowed to, to harm yourself unto death or others unto death, right? Yourself or others. And so when we're talking about um, structures of authority and the, the use of that authority to serve other people, you don't have the freedom to harm others. You just don't have it. It's not your job. Um, there are, well, we'll say it this way, um, in the category of harm, you can think of lots of different things. Lots of different things come to mind when you talk about harming one another. Um, we are not free to harm other people. And it typically happens in a power differential relationship. Um, this is where physical force becomes a, a very important topic, particularly in the home. Uh, certainly, I think our culture is becoming more and more violent, just more and more violent. I think we're, we're expressly forbidden to use physical harm. Right? There is a sense in which um, if, you, if you talk about physical harm or taking of life as, a, um, as an act of war, as an act of, there, there are categories for all of those. Scripture speaks to all those. We're talking about the relationship of authority and care and the, the prohibition to harm. And abuse is a violation of multiple commandments, including the sixth. Including the sixth. All those domestic, child,
child, sexual, spiritual. Spiritual, maybe not so much as physical force, but you're doing harm. You're doing harm. Any other comments on the sixth commandment? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great one because um, it, it's, it's coming up every day, right? Every day. If we disagree, the language that's now being used is you are committing violence to me, which is a change of the definition, right? That, which is how all of these, um, these items continue to morph and shift and change on when you say violence, do you mean that I'm disagreeing with you? <laughs> Or do you mean I'm actually physically coming after you? Because there's a difference. Uh, and you and, I, you and I, we fundamentally know this difference. But what Bob has described is a tactic that's used to stifle discussion. Stifle any disagreement. It is intended to make you quiet. And I started the entire time by saying... Um, in many, many ways, in many, many conditions and circumstances, you are not free to be quiet. Elders are forbidden to be quiet with the vows that we have taken. When we are aware of circumstances that require engagement, require it. So the, the cultural movement of, if you disagree with me, I'm being harmed, even using the word violence, is nonsensical. It doesn't, it doesn't hold up in, a, um, in a, a real evaluation of what are we talking about. And that's where we kind of got into is we're not going to talk anymore. That's sort of the goal is don't say anything that I'm doing is wrong. It's shifted fairly quickly, right? It's moving fairly quickly. And, and I don't know exactly where it's going to land, but I do know... Um, I do know that the, the basic conscientious approach to you'll have to violate your own conscience to say I have physically harmed you or, or mentally uh, destroyed you by disagreeing with you. That's going to be a difficult thing to talk about, prove, and yet we are called to, uh, as Jim said in our sermon on the Ninth Commandment, we're called to speak in many, many circumstances when the truth is not being promoted, right? There is a difference. I'm, I'm not, I am not allowed just to, just to verbally um, browbeat you, um, even if I think that's what you need, right? That's, what, that's whiplash. Even if I think you need this, you need me to beat you up verbally just to get your attention. And I've been guilty of it, right? I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm sure maybe not you. But I've been guilty of using the ability to argue as a way to pin somebody, literally pin them, when I didn't really care about them, right? And all of these commandments are intended to be express love of neighbor, not, not let me show you my strength so I can beat you up. Let me show you my strength so I can serve you. Let me show you the strength of what we believe so that we can serve you. Let me show you the strength of real identity in Jesus and how different that is than what you're pursuing and how destructive it is that you are pursuing identity by whim of the day. And that's what it is. I'm going to identify myself by whatever whimsical thing is going on today. I know I'm making light of a lot of stuff, 
but it will change tomorrow. If, uh, if the recent Bud Light saga has said anything, that'll change tomorrow. All right, seventh commandment. Talk about the seventh commandment before we run out of time and how that is connected to abuse. The reminder, the seventh commandment is... You shall not commit adultery, which is a, a prohibition against sexual immorality um, and an a, um, encouragement command to maintain sexual purity. How is, that in a, how is that used in an abusive situation? Used or abused in a, any of those categories? Yeah, in some cases, thank you, Jared, in some cases... The violation of the seventh commandment not only is a, um, a sin for the abuser, but now you have caused the victim to enter into the same uh, sinful condition, right? And, and this is one where um, I know culturally you have to, um, who, who is going to believe whom? Who are you going to believe, right? That's the one that's kind of, kind of thrown up and said, who are you going to believe? In these cases, and uh, and abusers, but uh, victims are not sinless. Let me just remind you of that before you think that I'm saying something else. All people are sinful. All people have their own issues and problems and and um, peccadillos. But the reality is, none of that allows for abuse. None of it. Abusers use that very uh, thinking um, to to ba- basically say. Um, I have, a, I have a right. I have a right to this. And I'll take it. And it's twisted. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost instantly twisted to start thinking about where that kind of goes from there. The, the, the kind of the dark thinking that goes along with that, you've, you've seen it played out. You've, you know the stories. You know the, the, the case studies. It plays out in some really twisted and dark ways. It does horrendously terrible things to relationships, including marriage. It's why I'm going to stop here and say this. Um, we, we're in a denomination that is uh, seeking every day to be faithful to the Scriptures. Every day. In all of our documents, and all of our in- engagements, and all of our courts, and all of our worship, we're just um, seeking all the time to be biblically faithful. Let's, let's do whatever we can to be aligned with Scripture, with what God says, right? Included in that is our understanding of covenantal authority, authority in the church. And that authority in the church is given to males from an ordained office perspective. That doesn't mean women have no authority. It just means that when it comes from an ordained office we are very clear because the scriptures are very clear that those roles belong to men. So here's what that means. We had better, I'm speaking to my elder brothers and to the rest of the men in the country, we had better be so careful to represent the voice of our sisters in all of our engagements in a way that they would recognize as important to them because they don't have a seat at that table, then they had better have adequate representation, fair 
strong representation. Perhaps the most encouraging moment in my experience in our church over the last 10 years, been many encouraging moments. I, I'll just have to tell you, it is so good to be a part of what God is doing at Christ Covenant Church. I, I hope that you feel the same, that you are witnessing God playing out what he's doing amongst our families. But one of the most encouraging times was when we put together a pulpit committee after our founding pastor moved on to the Mid-South Church Planning Network, and we had to go find a pastor. We built a pulpit committee uh, with the entire session, which is kind of unusual. The entire session would be... Now, that's three of us. We need more. Praying for more. Lord, please provide more. But there were three of us. And then we fleshed it out with some other folks on the pulpit committee, which included several of our sisters and one more deacon, right? And over the weeks and weeks and weeks of interaction, it was abundantly important to us to say how... Of course, the session is going to be the one that the body that actually uh, helps refine the, the candidate, the vetting, uh, as did everybody on the committee. But how important it was for our sisters to, to say uh, we were significantly, importantly, with, um, with the uh, cooperation of the session, had, had authority to help with this decision, right? Under the session. And to have, when we finally made that presentation of a candidate, um, to have our sisters be able to articulate to the congregation, our voices were heard. That was huge. For old Sean, that was a big day. It's like, ah, that's one of those days I, you, can't, you couldn't set it up, you couldn't make it happen, it just, it just happened. That our sisters who represented, for all the sisters in this congregation said, we were heard and we were involved. And we helped in this selection process. It's just a picture of what you hope to see. I'm not saying we do it all right all the time because we don't. I'm just saying because we are in a denomination that seeks to be biblically faithful, including the offices, that we had better be careful to represent the voices of our sisters fairly and in a strong way as representatives given authority to serve others, not to tamp down or extinguish the views of others, but to actually serve them and empower them to do what God's called them to do. I don't think that helps every question that my sisters have on why God made it this way and not that way. I, I, don't, I don't think I have an answer that will satisfy you on this side, but I will say because we're trying to be biblically faithful, please know that our desire is to represent you well and to hear you and to know that there is a, there's a power differential there that has to be addressed with service. Uh, finally, the ninth commandment, which is preserving and promoting the truth, uh, entering into best investigation to find truth. Um, so thoughts on how that commandment would be applicable to abuse situations. Oh, I didn't, um, well, 
yes, there's a reason I did. Um, I did because I'm simply presenting to you what the DASA paper says, and those were the four commandments. But it would be absolutely right, John Wilcoxon, in all of the, those thoughts to say that's another commandment that's being smashed in terms of abuse. Thank you. Now the ninth commandment, as I run out of time. Ninth commandment is the preservation of truth, right? Um, so, so as cases come up, and we're going to talk about cases and case studies, but as cases come up, they're horrible. They're te- no, nobody, nobody wants to have to dive into those cases, but you can't be quiet. The session cannot be quiet when, in terms of abuse cases that emerge. So it requires the session to enter into investigation This is what's going to drive you bananas, particularly if you're the victim. And that is, that investigation will feel like it's taking forever. And that's not the intent. It's not to stall. It's not to delay. It is simply to be sure that we're hearing and promoting the truth in all the aspects of that case. That we're hearing and promoting the truth. That is the goal. But from a victim's point of view, it's like, there is, there is, I can give you justice and execution right now. I know. Because I was there and I was the victim. So execute justice now. And sessions are required to preserve, and promote, and protect truth. So investigations take time. One thing I can tell you about Presbyterianism that probably is going to frustrate you for the rest of your life is it moves sort of slow. But I'm so glad that it moves sort of slow. Last slide, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, these are the takeaways for the next several weeks. <clears throat> um, if you can read that. Denise, can you read, can you read number one? Differentials. All right, so the, the standards, the paper actually says this is the takeaways that should affect the church and everybody in the church, that there are power differential, differentials. The Westminster Confession of Faith acknowledges that there are, and that document actually talks about what to do or, or what to understand about abuse in those cases. Who can read the second one? The, the notion that uh, the Bible cannot speak to these topics because it doesn't say anything about them is absolutely foolish and false. If... If you will take the time, this is what I typically say to my um, doubting friends, atheistic friends, who would say, well, the Bible doesn't even address these things. Have you read it? Have you ever read the Bible? It's this the judo effect. Um, The Bible doesn't even address those things. Have you read it? And the answer is almost always, no. So if you would like to read it together and see what it addresses in all these categories, I'd be glad to do that with you. Well, I'm here. Number three. I have to say this before we leave. There has been a history of people involved in this church who have worked very hard and diligently to put together policies for protection of particularly children in our midst. And I'm going to go and name, I'm going to name some names that from the time we started nursery and Maggie and um, uh, the, the teachers who were assembled early, early on to teach the children, plus Carol and Linda who went through an entire certification process in our denomination to work through policies that are established. And now Rebecca, who's on staff to help us actually codify a lot of that and put it in place where the session can say, this is a, this is a good policy, we like it. That is happening every day. 
I'm so glad that Carol and Linda and Rebecca and Maggie and others in the past have worked very hard to make sure that we are setting ourselves up for protect our kids. I'm very thankful for them. None of them are in the room to hear it, so please tell them. Uh, number four, discountenancing evil for those affected. So that's, our, um, that's part of our responsibility and outcome of this paper is um, it all, it's always been there. It's just a reiteration of we have a responsibility to care for one another uh, in terms of abuse, which also means investigating, which also means it's going to be really hard. Uh, the last one. Because we're so committed to the truth being protected, promoted, discovered, um, we should wisely, in many cases, seek for outside uh, verification of those things. Uh, many times, because particularly in the case of spiritual abuse, you're talking about people who are in leadership in the church who are guilty of it, and so you'll need somebody outside of you. Thankfully, guess what it means to be Presbyterian? That we're connected to other churches that have the same standards that we do, that believe the same things that we do, that practice the same things that we do, who know that they have an obligation to step in when your session is at fault. They have a responsibility to step in when the session is at fault. Last comments or anything else? All right, so over the next couple of weeks, it, it gets heavy, but um, I'm so grateful that we're talking about it, that we're spending time on it, because it is part of what happens when humans engage with each other, as we tend to abuse each other. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Uh, thankful for all the participation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word, and thank you for uh, a wonderful time of celebration of the gospel as we have um, experienced once again word, prayer, and sacrament. But we've also taken some time, as you have set aside, Father, to understand what it means to care for those um, in, under our authority, to care for those who we're in relationship with, care for those who um, we've been given some connection with that we might serve and not oppress or abuse or use to our own advantage. Father, thank you for being the very one uh, who seeks to protect, who seeks to destroy and will destroy injustice. And we look forward to the day when it's gone. We pray it in Christ's name.